Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Vuela al corner. Busca el corazón del área. El remate al palo. El remate al larguero. Viene otro chulo. Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, goodly morning to you. Goodly morning, Andrew. How you doing? I'm doing all right. It's very stormy over here today. We've had a, a sort of 80 mile an hour winds blow through, so... Has it got a name, the storm? Storm Debbie. Mmm. Mm. Sounds terrifying. I know. They make these these most benign names for storms. Like Storm. What was it last week? Storm Kieron, I think. Kieron was around. Yeah, you know, Kieron. I know a few Kierons. They're not that stormy, generally speaking. No, no, no. no. But it's stormy, but all's well. All is well. All is well. That's Arsenal good. are going into the interlull on the back of three points at home, which is good. And there's been sensational fun elsewhere in the Premier League this weekend. So I think everything's everything's a okay this end. How about you? Um, yeah, lovely weekend. I mean, the, the football gods have uh, smiled upon us uh, over the last couple of mm. days. Some some great fun to be had at Molyneux, at Stamford Bridge, which was just absolute chaos. Um, and an Arsenal win as well at the Emirates Stadium. So very, very pleased. And and a fantastic comeback as well for the Arsenal women last night. Holy moly. I was watching this uh, yesterday evening and um, it was like in the blink of an eye, Arsenal were 2-0 down before yeah. half time. I was like, uh-oh, that's not good. That's not... I, I hope they can, you know, pick things up in the second half. And the second half was just sensational like if they scored six and they could have been 10 i know they're kind of the comeback queens that team um mm. seven points from losing positions in the wsl this season alone i guess yeah, yeah. blistering stuff yeah i guess the thing would be not to get in the losing positions in the first place you know but where's the fun in that andrew though <laughs> let's be honest yeah you've got to challenge yourself Exactly. Got a chance. Uh, they're playing with the handicap, basically. Um, anyway, yes. And we beat Burnley, which is always fun. I think there was some record going around when Mikel Arteta maybe hadn't beaten Burnley. I think they were the outstanding Premier League team that he hadn't recorded a victory against. But, that can't be right. I mean, maybe they were only in 
around for his first season or something like that. But we won one nil, didn't we, at, at Turf Moor? Odegaard scored that free kick that you and I forgot about a few episodes oh, ago. Oh yes. So I don't know what that I don't know what that record is. Basically, he didn't have a great record against Burnley going in. I remember, of course, there being a home defeat. Um, that must have in, been in. It could be in like the bad home, times. Yeah, the home record perhaps. Oh was. man, that was bleak, wasn't it? Uh, yes, yes. But let's, you know, let's set that aside. Exactly. We've come through that, and you know the scars are there. The traumas will linger forever and ever. But you know, let's <laughs> let's move past it and and try and concentrate on what's tattooed on our hearts <laughs> forever. <laughs> the Aubameyang own goal. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Fuck. I'd forgotten about that. Um, but this is a different Arsenal, Andrew, and a, and a different Burnley. Fortunately, one is. that concede loads of goals. I was I was interested to, uh, to see what sort of approach they would take for this game because you know the there are teams I think that are set up in the Premier League who because of you know their stature or because of um you know who they are they will play in a very specific way and a lot of that is is based around defensive organization, solidity, denying space, as we've talked about and people have uh, observed many times this season. You know, when when teams realize you're good, you end up playing against a deep defense or a low block or whatever you want to call it quite a lot, right? And there are teams, I think, that that really suits because of the the sort of underdog status that they have. But Burnley... You know, they, they they got promoted last season in very fine style. They scored a lot of goals, got a lot of points, won a lot of games. And they have these sort of principles to their football that, by and large, they try and stick to for the most part. Mm-hmm. But it feels almost suicidal to come to a, a place like Arsenal and, and play that way. So it was interesting to note that they did try and play with a deep block. They did try and sit in deep. They did double up on the fullbacks. All of the stuff that, you know, makes sense, I suppose, for a team like that to come and do. But at the same time, it's not really their game. So it was about whether or not they'd be able to to sort of maintain that. Yeah, and and actually, you know, Arsenal obviously opened the scoring right before half time, but I thought other than that, Burnley probably would have been pretty pleased with the first half in some respects. You know, they they kept Arsenal out, they limited them to some decent shots from the edge of the box, but not a great deal more than that. Um, and they actually had a couple of chances on the breakaway, one very good chance, mm. uh, which was well saved by David Raya. So I actually felt that they would have been, you know, on the in the forty fifth minute or whatever it was really content with how things were going for them. Obviously, Arsenal eventually got that goal for half-time and it's a, a perfect time to score. But but I imagine if you're Vincent Company or a Burnley fan, imagine being a Burnley fan, wow, um, you probably are leaving this game feeling a bit frustrated when you look at the nature of the goals two and three that they conceded. They're set-piece goals um, and fairly sloppy from a Burnley perspective. So they'll probably walk away from the episode with some frustrations, even though they were sort of quite soundly beat. I, I suppose, yeah, if they're looking for silver linings, it, it might well be the fact that, you know, set-piece goals, and I'm sure we'll talk about set-pieces and our efficiency from set-pieces, um, but they did have that chance. I think that was a really, really good chance. Um, it was a, an uncharacteristic little mistake from William Saliba. He sort of poked yeah. the ball back and it went between two defenders and, and I think it was Goodmanson who ran through. Very, very good save from David Ryan. A very important save at that point in the game. You know, I, I, I think as the half went on, 
we started to notice that this isn't, uh, maybe Burnley weren't quite in their comfort zone, if you like, when it came to playing that way and when it came to defending and when it came to the sort of levels of concentration that you have to have, uh, you know, to sit deep and to deny space. And like when you when you double up on the wingers, it means there's some space for somebody else elsewhere, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and how quickly you can get the ball to them in, the, in that uh, sense is is important. We did that when it came to the first goal. I mean, I think they will look at that goal and question you know, the center half, should you get beaten to a header by Bakayo Saka in yeah. that area? I'm not 100% sure you should. But, you know, the uh, the fact is they their concentration started to wane a little bit towards the end of that half, and we did get a little bit more, a little bit more joy. Before we get to that first goal, though, do have to give some props to the other goalkeeper, our, our pal from Cockermouth. Yeah, <laughs> James Trafford. Um, I know he was caught out on their second goal, and that's that's something I think that he will learn from. You know, experience is is really important for goalkeepers, and he got that one wrong. But I think that save from Bakayo Saka is one of the best saves I've seen so far this season because uh, you know they didn't necessarily show this on Match of the Day, so I don't know if you've seen a full replay of this. Mm. There is an angle from behind Saka when he takes that shot. It just breaks to him and he just whacks it with his right foot. This ball is going like postage stamp right into the top corner. And the way he gets across and gets his hand on that to push it onto the bar is just unbelievable. What a brilliant save. Yeah, I was I was choked up for the boy from Cockermouth. It was a <laughs> uh, stunning save. Yeah, I, I was sort of behind Saka, actually. And... Uh, I thought, well, that's in. Like, as soon as he mm. hit it, I was like, well, that, that'll be a goal. Yeah, it reminded me of his goal at Villa Park, you know, last season where he hit it off his right foot, I think, and it just shot into the top of the net. He, yeah. He's unleashed a few shots like that in his time at Arsenal, and I thought the goalkeeper was beaten, made a very, very, very good save. Made another decent save from Trossard from the edge of the box after Declan Rice won the ball quite high up. Mm. Um uh, so yeah, his, his reflexes were were very very good. It's interesting, you know. You mentioned the first goal and the, the centre half for Burnley. Will they have some recriminations? I mean, Arsenal, I do think were looking for the sort of crosses to the back post quite a lot in this game. Kai Havertz obviously played in midfield, but it seemed a lot of the time like he was operating almost as a, a second striker, and we were seeing some some lofted passes into the box towards him. Uh, even this one, I think, which comes from Zinchenko, is towards him. Um, but it's Saka who ends up getting there first. But it did seem to be almost deliberate on Arsenal's part to, to kind of make Havertz that second striker and give us a target uh, in the penalty box, because obviously Leo Trossard conventionally, typically, mm. does not provide that. No, well, that's true. And when you are playing against a team that is sitting deep, you know, do you try and open up space? I thought it was very interesting, Mikel Arteta, before the game, he was talking about attacking units and relationships. And he mentioned how important they were because when you do face teams like this, he said, you've got to play something along the lines of you have to play in tight spaces. So understanding what the the guys around you are going to do is is really important. Um, but, you know, it did feel like as the half went on, 
we were just throwing in crosses, not quite willy-nilly, but, you know, they were more hopeful than, than anything else. I mean, yeah. Havertz, Havertz could have scored as well, couldn't he? What was it from a corner, I think, from the left-hand side? Or I think Saka took a corner anyway, um, from our right-hand side, rather, and he headed over the bar. Um, That's right, yeah. You know, probably should have hit the target anyway, whether it was a goal or not. You never know. The the boy from Cockermouth could have got across to that one too. Um, but <laughs> I, I wouldn't put anything past him. But no. yeah, uh, it was a decent chance that actually, you know, he made a, a good connection with it. Um, and I suppose set pieces, you know, will come on to them in the second half, but they were always going to be uh, telling in some respects. But I was sat over on Bukai Saka's side for this game. And it did feel a little bit in the first half like we were just sort of giving him the ball <laughs> and sort of hoping he could make something happen, mm. where, even when he was kind of double marked, you know. And it was it was difficult. They were, you know, they were a, a deep defending team who were pretty stubborn and uh, we were missing some key attacking personnel as well. And I think it's yeah. difficult to analyse the performance without mentioning that. You know, the likes of Martin Odegaard and Gabriel Jesus, they're pretty integral to how we play. Yeah, I mean, it's hard not to to mention those absences when it comes to, you know, the players or the performances that we're putting in, you know, and people will say, well, 3-1, it was a bit of a struggle against Burnley. But yeah, you know, you don't have Ben White, for example, who's important yeah. down that right-hand side. You don't have Martin Odegaard, whose connection with... Um, Bakayo Saka and Ben White is is sort of not telepathic, but they know each other very well. Going back to what I was saying about Arteta and relationships and things like that, you don't have Thomas Partey in your team. You don't have um, Gabriel Jesus in your team. You know, there are players missing and Arsenal, you know, this, um, this season have had to cope pretty much throughout the season with with players who are missing. And I think part of, another part of that though is like, what about the guys who are coming in? What about the guys who are coming in and taking the place of the players that we're missing? And are we getting sufficient from them? And I think, you know, there's a, a bit of a split in that regard, isn't there? Because Leandro Trossard, two goals in, in two games for him, mm -hmm. starting up front. So he's come in for Jesus or Eddie or whoever you want to say he's replacing. He's come in and been very effective and, and got some end product. Kai Havertz in for Martin Odegaard not quite at the same level it's fair to say no I think that's a fair point and and something I, I observed about Trossard obviously in this game and in the week you know we typically we think of him as a guy who's a good connector good combination player someone who you know can bring the best out of Gabriel Martinelli for example on that left hand side cohesive team player but he actually scores two poachers goals this week really um, you know inside not if not quite the six yard box the other night, uh, certainly within about ten yards of goal, from one from a Bukayo Saka cross across the box, and one being brave on the yeah. goal line to to get it over the line. So uh, you know, I, I I'd say a chapeau to Leandro Trossard. I think he's done fine work as the centre forward this week. Yeah, I think so. We actually had a question on that from Anil on Twitter, who's at Anil underscore Nijar, who said, good morning, gents. Should Eddie be concerned that Trossard's last two goals have been, 
Eddie mm-hmm. goals. The two wingers seem better when playing with Leo as well. And I do think that connectivity is 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 there. I think there is a bit more to that um, between Trossard, particularly with Trossard on that left-hand side. Maybe we'll come to that in the second half because it was a very... Uh, I noticed about, um, something about our second half performance that I think we should talk about. But um, the Trossard-Martinelli... Uh, connection is there but then this connection he has with Bakayo Saka where all seven of the goals that he has scored for Arsenal have come from Bakayo Saka assists the one from last season it's mad isn't it I mean Bakayo Saka does get a lot of assists I think that's the first thing that tells you yeah Um, the other thing on Trossard is I've always felt that in his first few months at the club he was sold a bit short on goals you know he had this remarkable record of assists but he had a great goal at Leicester ruled out. Do you remember for the Ben White uh, holding the goalkeeper's hand? Sure. And he had a few instances where he struck the ball so beautifully and was so unlucky, like he hit the woodwork, hit the bar. I seem to remember that happening against Southampton and a couple of other instances where he was inches from the goal. And I've always thought, actually, he's been more of a threat mm. than his goals record would suggest. So I'm glad to see that kind of evening itself out now yeah and I guess if you are Eddie it is a little bit of a worry I mean Eddie wasn't called up to the England squad for this international break I know he's had an injury that kept him out against Sevilla but not selected by Southgate um and obviously that's really important for him to be in that England squad and from an Arsenal perspective Trossard has done kind of what he did Mm. in February March time last year where he stepped in for Eddie and shown he's absolutely an option um, through the middle and I, I've been really really impressed obviously I hope it's not a debate because we get Gabriel Jesus back sooner rather than later but you know at the moment there's no argument really to take Trossard out of the side Do you? does it give you a little more comfort if you like when we are dealing with this Gabriel Jesus injury and perhaps you know, a player who, since the knee surgery, is is suffering a couple of little, you know, aches and and niggles and what have you that you know off, can often happen after a player has surgery, and then you know, you, discussions about Eddie and does he score enough goals? Does he get enough goals away from home? Do we need to buy a striker? You know, throw all the money at Ivan Tony, all that kind of stuff. Does the the effectiveness of Leandro Trossard give you a little bit of a safety blanket in that regard? Bearing in mind as well that he is kind of also a, a sort of first deputy, if you like, for Gabriel Martinelli on the left-hand side. Well, I, I wonder, and this is sort of quite a fresh thought but for me, so apologies if I don't articulate it well, but it does make me feel almost like maybe the emphasis, as we sort of discussed last week, should be more on getting a proper alternative to Martinelli and Saka because in the number nine uh, part of the pitch, we do have a decent list of players who can play there. You know, we've got Jesus, we've got Nketiah, we've got Trossard, uh, we've got Kai Havertz if we absolutely need it. Uh, we've got Gabriel Martinelli, potentially, he's done it before. But when I when it comes to the wide areas, I know Trossard is an alternative to mm. Martinelli, but he's so different to me stylistically that... I worry that if we lost Martinelli or Saka for any length of time, I think we would feel that absence sure. maybe more so. So it does make me slightly think maybe it's less about the number nine and maybe it's more about 
the wide areas. I don't know. What do you reckon? Yeah, maybe, maybe. I just, I just like what Trossard gives us up front. I think he's a very intelligent player, really technically secure. You know, you, yeah. you trust him when the ball comes to him. There are games I think where it doesn't quite work for him. He doesn't quite get into it. But you know, a day like Saturday. Like there was a moment where the ball was sort of pinging around the uh, the Burnley penalty box, and he just reacted in a split second to chest the ball towards Martinelli, and I was just like, "That's just so fucking impressive because mm-hmm. it's 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 so quick. His reaction time is very quick, and it helped us keep possession in a in a period of the game when we needed it, you know. And I, I, again, I don't mean this to be a slight on Eddie, but I don't see Eddie doing that. You know what I mean? So I, I agree with you. I think, you know, we, we've got cover at centre forward and I think Trossard is effective. He deserved to keep his place. He probably deserves to keep his place after the break if Jesus is not back. Um, but come January, yes, another winger would be would be very important. Um, I think his football IQ is his best asset, Trossard. I really yeah. think... And, and he showed that in January to come into a team and immediately understand the tactical model and be able to shine in various positions. I think that told you this guy um, is smart and I think has a sort of intuitive understanding mm. of the game. And I think you see that a lot of the time in the way he plays and it enables him to overcome some of his shortcomings like physical, you know, the sure. fact that he's not particularly tall. Um, well, he was brave enough, wasn't he, to get up and get that header and clatter himself off the post. Looked yeah, bit, credit bit, to him. Looked a bit credit dodgy for a few minutes, but... Uh, there was a moment against Seville in in midweek where Arsenal were trying to play out and they, they smashed a ball into him on the halfway line and he had like a six-foot-two centre-half or whoever it was behind him and he just killed it with his mm. technique, you know, he was able to like bring it under control, perfect cushion touch, span away from his man. And it was just a really illuminating moment where you sort of saw, well, you know, there are other ways to play centre forward. There are other ways to hold the ball up, to bring teammates into play. You don't have to be six foot four. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you've got the other attributes to kind of cover for it. And I think Trossard does that really, really well. Mm. Burnley began the second half quite brightly. They had a, a run and showed a little bit of something and then they got a they got an equaliser. There were some shouts, I think, for foul on, on Tommy Asu, but yeah. to me that's very six of one, half a dozen of the other. Like if it's, for example, Martinelli going through uh, at the other end and he's tangling with the defender that way and comes out with the ball I'd be furious if a free kick was given against him for that because you know Tommy Asu had hold of the I think it was Koleosha wasn't it had hold of his shirt and everything else so I, I think that's just one where um, as much as I love Tommy Asu and I think he was good in this game and defensively there were moments where he was just so so impressive this was one where he just came out the wrong end of uh, wrong end of a 50-50 yeah, you'd like to think what's happened there is the officials have looked at it and they've seen Tommy Asu's hand on Kaleosho's shirt and thought, well, it's six of one, you know, and half a dozen of the other. I, on the subject of the officials, um, <laughs> I did just want to check in on your thoughts on them blowing up for a foul by Bakai Saka at the far post in the first half. Do you remember that? Incident? I do remember that. I remember, uh, you know, that emoji where it's just like the line for a mouth and the two lines for the eyes. I just, that was me for about 10 seconds going, okay, so that's a push yeah. in the back, is it? I see. I think I see. On the, even on the match of the day commentary, they kind of say, yeah, a clear push there from Bukai Saka. 
And I'm like, yeah, okay. Okay. But I think, this week, this week yeah, that's a clear push. This week. But look, it is what it is. And, um, you know, I thought our Arteta's comments afterwards were quite funny uh, about VAR and the referees being top and all that kind of stuff. Very positive. You know? Very, very positive. And look, you know, it, it just it just highlights what we all know anyway. So I, I don't think we need to dwell on it. As for as for the goal, bit of good fortune, I think, because it deflects off Gabrielle's heel. But, you know, defensively, we, we could have done better. Yeah, I don't think we were quite at it at the start of the second half. Um, I think even before the goal, there was a breakaway attack maybe um, where one of their guys like ran down the left and I think they ultimately mm. sort of made nothing of it. But I remember Declan Rice immediately sort of like, you know, well, basically bollocking his teammates and saying, come on, get into it. And then a couple of minutes later, there was another moment like that with Jorginho where he's doing all the pointing at his temples so I did have this slight sense of maybe Arsenal's focus wasn't absolutely what it could have been at the start of the second half. Um, and Burnley got their reward and, you know, it's a bit of a smash and grab to be at one all, but they would absolutely have taken that. And uh, yeah, the, the, the away fans were at that point in time in fine voice. And I think had we been pegged back to one all for any length of time, it might have got a bit nervy mm. in the ground. But, you know, the Arsenal response was very good. It was. I mean, the the Burnley goal was in the 54th minute and then we were level in the 57th. Wow. Um, so, you know, it, it came from, wasn't it a, a Martinelli, he got in behind the defence. Um, yeah, nice little move. Declan Rice passed over the top and mm. sort of stabbed an effort which ended up going straight at the keeper, but we got the corner. Yeah, we got the corner, and from corners we were very good. I mean, this is where, like we talked about it, experience for goalkeepers is is very important. The way that the Arsenal players just sort of uh, shuffled around in front of him, and then Saliba parks himself in front of the goalkeeper and heads home from, from close range. I mean, he won't score an easier goal. It's great movement, and it's a nice bit of set-piece play, I think. Um, good delivery from Trossard, who, what game was it? Was it the West Newcastle. Ham or Newcastle? Yeah, Newcastle, when we had a lot of corners and the delivery was was not good. So maybe somebody had a word and he's done a bit of it's, corner it's tricky, practice. It's isn't it? Because, yeah, he, that's that near post area that he was looking to hit against Newcastle, yeah, but just fine. couldn't quite clear that first man. This time he managed it. Yeah, it's kind of fine margins, isn't it? It's like Very, yeah. 2% power or whatever it is um, makes the difference between good delivery and bad delivery. But it was good delivery this time. And, uh, you know, a big goal for, for William Saliba. At which point, Mikel Arteta made a change. He brought off Kai Havertz in the 59th minute and put on Fabio Vieira. Before we I talk think that about- was pre-planned, as in I think he was preparing to do that before we scored, to be honest. Okay. Um, um, and sort of chose to proceed with it anyway, you know? Okay. So we'll talk about uh, Vieira now in a second. Um, we got some daylight in the 74th minute. But before we get to that goal, did you notice in this half just how weighted we were to the left-hand side? Hmm. That's like, an interesting point. But, I, I I didn't have the best sort of panorama of the pitch, but now that you say it, that makes absolute sense. Yeah, we did seem to be. Saka barely had a kick in the second yeah. half. And everything that we did came down the left-hand side. Now, I don't know if that was deliberate, just the way the game played out, whether it was a strategy on our part, whether it was something missing from the other side of the pitch. 
And we talked about, you know, ben White, White, Odegaard. White Odegaard Saka as a, as a triangle or a triumvirate of, of players who who connect with each other very well. Tomiyasu, Saka and Havertz slash Vieira, maybe not quite on the same wavelength. And I think, you know, there's something to be said for Declan Rice as the glue if you know what I mean, like it must be impossible not to be involved wherever Declan Rice is, you're going to have the ball. And he, you know, he spent quite a lot of time on that left-hand side in that sort of uh, left-hand space and, and drove forward. And he was then able to, you know, play it with Zinchenko, play it with Martinelli, play with Trossard. And it came at the expense of the right-hand side though. So, you know, I don't know if it was just a quirk of this particular game, but it was very unusual to see us, particularly when you consider how effective and how important Bakayo Saka is, to see him basically marginalised right through the second half. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to see a breakdown of kind of the weighting of Arsenal's attacks between first half and second half. Because my, as I said, in when we were discussing the first half earlier, I felt like the ball was ending up at Saka's feet a lot in those first 45 minutes. Um maybe arriving at him a little bit late and in situations where it was difficult for him to profit. Uh, so I wonder if it was a response in some respects to the first half. You know, Arteta saying, look, mm. they've, they've locked up that side of the pitch. They know what we're trying to do there. Let's hit the other area. I mean, another thing to say is obviously Zinchenko came in and started this game and he's so integral to the way we build up uh, mm-hmm. that I think that's going to kind of introduce an element of bias to that side. You make a good point about Rice. I think Trossard, if he gravitates to one side, it is the left. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you might get more of an overload there in terms of the numbers. But, yes, yeah, it's, it's a good point. And now you say it, like, I, I, when I think back, very little came down the right in that second. Yeah, he looks slightly forlorn coming off when, when you know, and I can understand him being taken off. It's 3-1 and, you know, it's the sort of game that you think you're going to be able to see out. Um, but he did look a bit like, oh, fed up, you know, whether that's because he wasn't involved or whether something else, I don't know. And I could be reading just too much into the uh, facial expression of a guy who's coming off with 10 minutes to go in a game of football, you know, but it was, it was noticeable to me anyway, that, that pretty much everything came down the left-hand side. And, you know, to be fair, it was effective. We, we won a lot of corners. Um, it was a corner from which we got the third goal as well. Yeah. I mean, but what Burnley's a- attempts to score an own goal continued yeah. <laughs> uh, as they headed against their own bar. Yeah, yeah, it came out. And what a finish from Zinchenko. It's real karate kid stuff, isn't it? Uh, and, and that's kind of the only way he could have done it because if he takes a touch, if he lets it bounce, if he tries to take it down, I think he gets closed down by the defender. Um, perfect. I mean, just perfect the way he got up and guided that into the top corner. Yeah, pretty audacious finish. Um and not altogether surprising, you know, I, I don't think anyone doubts his technical ability and the speed of his decision-making as well, to, to see the ball at that height and think, right, yeah. what is the execution here? Um, it was a beautiful, beautiful goal. And uh, I, th- I, th- I thought it was really interesting what Arteta said in his press conference afterwards about calling set pieces. And he said, we are the team that needs more set pieces as teams defend really low against us and really prevent spaces. So it's a good way for us to score goals as well. I found it interesting that he said, not we are a team, we are the team mm. that needs more set pieces. Yeah, I uh, mean, is that applicable to Man- Manchester City or do they just have more ways of scoring goals than we have? And I think that, yeah, that might I be part like of it. Yeah, I that's the case. Um, um, but it is clearly, you know, 
going to be a, a significant focus for us this season. And it mm. kind of has to be as a function of some of the teams we're playing against. Yeah, we, I think we had a question, but maybe I'll, maybe I'll uh, come to that in the second half. 3-1, and he made changes. He brought off Saka, he brought off Trossard, put Nketiah Nelson on, mm. and then Fabio Vieira got a straight red card. I, I, you know, I, I don't think he can have any complaints whatsoever. I think that's a straight red card. I think if an Arsenal player is challenged in that way, I'd be fuming if the red card wasn't given to, to the opposition. And, you know, this goes back to what we were talking about a little bit with, with Havertz, you know, who had a very average game in the Martin Odegaard role, but Vieira came on and, well, he was worse. You know, I don't think, you know, if you're going to criticize Kai Havertz and you can do and all the rest of it, I understand it, 65 million pounds, blah, blah, blah. I think you're looking, if you're Mikel Arteta, you're looking for a lot more from both of those players. You're looking for more from Vieira. You're looking for more from Havertz. You're not getting it at this moment in time. And then Vieira does something really stupid, like get himself sent off like that. Not good. Not good at all. And I agree with you. It is a red card. I sort of think you could see it in his face that he knew he was in trouble. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I did. I thought his protestations were sort of quite half-hearted, frankly. I think he knew that that wasn't, you know, not going to be overturned. Mm. Um, and it's a, it's a loss. I mean, I know he's not playing well, but this is a time in the season where we've suffered a number of injuries. We don't need to be losing a player for three Premier League games. Um and I think Arteta, the fact that he just sort of stared straight ahead as mm. Fabio Vieira trudged down the tunnel, uh, told its own story. I mean, you couldn't really have any complaints, I don't think. No, not at all. Not at I all. know he doesn't make massive contact with the player. You don't need to, though. In that, you know, when yeah. players are moving that quickly and you you sort of catch a guy on the on the kneecap with your studs, that's extremely painful and also extremely dangerous. Yeah. I, you know, I don't think, you know, Fabio Vieira is not a hatchet man or anything like that. He's not a dirty player, but that was just a nasty, a nasty challenge that he yeah, didn't really need to make. What do you think make. he was thinking? Like, what, what would you imagine was I don't, behind it? I don't know. I, a couple of minutes before that, he got clattered a couple of times. He was fouled from behind. And then I think there was like an accidental boot in the head as the players were falling. He took a a heel. It could have been one of the Burnley players. Right. Took a heel in the head. So I don't know if he was like a bit crotchety because of that, that maybe he felt somebody had, you know, done him on purpose. And I'm not sure that's the case. That's the only thing I can really think of is that he was, his blood was up a bit for some reason and he decided to just leave a bit on someone. There's no other way to really rationalize that tackle because the ball is gone. I don't even know what he's trying to do. Yeah, he just sort of hangs that leg out. It's it, it is, uh, I suppose, reckless and um, yeah, bad moment for him really, uh, and, and one that you know is going to cost him because he's he's not going to be involved in the next three games. And I wouldn't be surprised if Mikel Arteta is a little bit reticent to you know select him for his next game. Yeah, I mean he, you know, we've been around the houses a bit with this guy, haven't we where we're going like when when's he going to play? Then he came in and did well and everyone's like, "Oh, the whole thing around Fabio Vieira has changed." And now it's sort of come full circle again where he he wasn't getting starts. He's coming off the bench. That's your moment to make an impact and you know, he's he's blown it. When you look at the next 3 games, you know, Brentford, 
Wolves and Luton. Luton. Yeah. You know, he probably had a chance of playing in one of those, maybe. I don't know. Um, but it was, yeah, really, really silly. It put us down to 10 men. We put Kivior on. I don't think we were in any danger or anything like that, were we? In the final few minutes, there were a lot of good no. tackles. I think Tommy Asu made two or three really good uh, tackles and clearances and, and stuff like that. And then there was an injury late on. On TV, on Premier Sports here, the ball came in the box. There was this almighty scream. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like it was like... Someone messaged me saying, did you hear? I, obviously, I wasn't watching the TV pictures, but someone said it was the return of the Highbury screamer. It was not too dissimilar from that. And uh, on Premier Sports here in Ireland, they were showing the thing and uh, there was a replay and the commentator was like, well, yeah, Jorginho's gone down a bit theatrically there. A couple of minutes later, Jorginho gets up with blood all over his head. Not even the slightest hint of a retraction. None of it. <laughs> You know, wow. Not even like, oh, maybe it wasn't as theatrical as I thought, you know. Um, but no, yeah. I mean, I guess in that last period, we were grateful for that third goal. You know, had it been 2-1 yeah. and we'd gone down to 10 men, I think it would have been quite nervy. But as it was, mm. uh, we weren't in a particularly great deal of danger. So there was an interesting comment again on the TV coverage I was watching. I think it was Gary Breen who was talking about Arsenal this season and, you know, the money that we've spent you know, 100 million on rice and, and obviously money on timber, which we haven't seen any uh, value from yet, unfortunately, and, and Kai Havertz and things like that. And he, he said, you have to ask the question, are Arsenal better for that, you know, outlay? Mm. And I thought it was quite interesting because my first thought was like, are we better? This sort of ties into the to the wider conversation about how people are feeling about games and maybe the atmosphere inside the stadium, which you could touch on a little bit because there was, um, you know, discussion of that. I saw that over the weekend where people were talking about the atmosphere and I, I was like, are we better? Not sure, but we're different. Yeah. We're different than last season. I think what, what, what I think anyway is that, the atmosphere last season in many ways was a consequence of, hmm, how do I put this properly? Um, it felt effortless in some ways, what we did last season, right? Once we got that momentum going, it felt kind of easy is not quite the right word, but you know what I mean? Mm. And this Organic. Season, yeah, yeah. And this season is much more difficult it's more of an effort to win games it doesn't feel quite as effortless as it did last season and i do wonder if that is sort of what plays into it and i wonder what what you think about that like should arsenal be better or can we be different still win games and perhaps make our way through the season on a different pathway from the one from last season where maybe you're doing it in a way where the ending isn't quite the same. Like, are we, are we being set up to, to be better in the second half of the season? Are the injuries and are the absences, um, as much as we talk about them, perhaps more important than we think they are? 
yeah, are we pacing ourselves differently? Have to hope so. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think it's a really fascinating question. And I found it interesting before the game, Arteta was speaking uh, about the team not scoring early as often in games. He said last season, you know, something we did really well is we, we broke games open. We got early goals yeah. and we haven't really done it this year. Um, and he spoke about it, something that he wants his team to do. But it's interesting because it, it seems to me that it sort of typifies the kind of shift in approach this year. I think there is a bit more control rather than going sort of hell for leather. Mm. Um, I think defensively, I actually don't think Bournemouth necessarily was defensively our best game, but I think defensively we've been very, very good. Burnley. Not Bournemouth. Uh, Burnley, yeah. not Bournemouth. Yeah, thank you. All the Bs, they're all the same to me. Mm. Um, uh, the atmosphere one, I think, is really interesting. I mean, we had um, some questions about this, uh, like uh, Brees on Twitter, BreesNess84, said it seems the crowd is a lot less engaged than last year. If that is true, is it because of less exciting football, seat allocation or other reasons? And Matt Taylor has said, were you disappointed like I was to see the stadium half empty at full time? I do think that in like 10, 15, 20 years, we may look back on last season and the season before it to an extent as kind of a high point in terms of atmosphere and jubilation and... It strikes me that it was sort of in a very sweet spot. Mm -hmm. There were lots of factors that contributed to that. You know, I think COVID was one and coming out of that and fans' excitement to be back in stadiums was still, I think, tangible in that period. I think the fact that we were overperforming uh, where we were expected to be. And I think the amount of money that you spend, as Gary Breen you know, mentioned, obviously shifts those expectations dramatically. Uh, there's almost a feeling that we have to win now to kind of justify what has been spent. Um, and I, I just think that that we're, it's a slightly different beast now. You know, we, we've got different standards we're trying to meet. Um, and I think the style of play is a factor as well. But I, I, I can't argue with people who say, oh, the atmosphere is not what it was. I think it has shifted. And I think I sort of knew this was coming as soon as Arsenal went close last year and then spent a load of money. Mm. It just changes the stakes. And I think there's more expectation than hope at this point in time sure. in that ground. But sure. that's not a bad thing. I mean, that's what happens when you're really good. Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, I, it would be great if it was a party atmosphere all the time, but you have to, like you say, take into account all those factors. And I think expectation levels are, are really what defines how you react to things, you know, mm. uh, and how you feel going into games and how you feel... Um, about what we're capable of doing and, and how we're doing it, you know? Personally, I have to say, look, I can't really comment on the atmosphere. I was there for the Sheffield United game. It was grand. 
Um, was a bit different from last season, but you know you could say that's just relegation, uh, newly promoted team rather, um, game you're expected to win, all the rest of it. I might be like Mister Glass half full on this, but I do, I do think there's something positive about our ability to win games without really important players, and we've basically gone through this entire season without really important players. From the very start, like yeah. you lose Timber in the first game. You've no Gabriel for the first three games. Um, Gabriel Jesus is out. Then he's back. Then he's out. Martin Odegaard has been out. Um, Zinchenko was out at the start of the season as well. Um, Saka was out. I know it was only for a game. Um, Partey's been out for most of the season. You know, big players who are who are fundamental to the kind of football that we all enjoyed last season and I wonder if last season we would have been able to cope as well I don't think we would I don't, I don't think, think so. that's arguable I you know I think we would have really struggled mm. um so it's a trade-off I, isn't it between um you know the the excitement and the effectiveness of your squad and you know we can all have some questions about certain players and certain individuals but even with a couple of them struggling a bit we're still winning games, and we're still, That's it, yeah. you know. So you can, you can you can critique an individual's performance all you like, but it doesn't seem to be inhibiting us from picking up points and dominating matches, which again is is testament, I think, to yeah. what the team is doing. You got to remember as well that last season we came back in January from a prolonged layoff due to the World Cup, and the title race was so delicately poised that pretty much every game had that feeling of a final. You know, mm. and we're in the first half of the season now, and the stakes just aren't the same. You know, it doesn't have that kind of well. If we lose here, it's over feeling that every single game had all that adrenaline pumped into it. Mm. Um, I think that obviously impacts on atmosphere as well, and I do think we are a bit less exciting to watch. But part of what made us exciting was jeopardy. And I think that Arteta has sought wherever he can to eliminate jeopardy mm. from this team. Um, and I think it's probably a lot less interesting for a neutral. And it's maybe a, a bit less... It gives you a few less feels, I think, <laughs> as a kind of style of play. But I do think it's probably more secure and more suited to winning a league. Mm. I've got a question about that, actually. So yeah. I might I might bring that into, uh, into part two. It's but interesting, like, looking down the road, you know, obviously it's been a great week for Spurs, losing twice. Uh, title challenge is officially over. <laughs> I've enjoyed that thoroughly. But prior to that, they are in this sort of blissful sweet spot honeymoon period where yeah. they've got a new manager they've massively overperformed expectations and i have sort of looked at that and thought oh, i've been there i've mm -hmm. been there and then what happens is it gets real and everything shifts the mood shifts the expectation shifts and it's how you cope then and arsenal are in that place now where they've spent money, where they're expected to challenge. They're not a surprise. They're not an underdog, really, anymore. You can't be when you spend what we have spent in this summer window. But I think what's impressive is despite the age of the group, despite relatively limited experience for the players and the manager, 
at the moment, they seem to be coping just fine. Yeah. And I think that parallel, you know, with that lot down the road is, is evident in the fact that, you know, when they lost a couple of players, they lost games. Yeah. And, and again, we've been there. Yeah. Like, I, I, I've seen it. Yeah. Um, and uh, this squad is more sustainable, and I suspect the style of play will prove more sustainable. The mad thing about this league is that you can improve all those things. You can be that much more secure, that much more solid, uh, that much more efficient, and it guarantees you nothing because yeah. you're up against the best team in the world yeah, yeah. who you can score against four times and still not beat them. So, you know, it's difficult. It is. All right. Well, look, let's take a little break here. We'll come back with questions and more in part two right after this. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter, at Gunnerblog and at Arsblog. Also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. I said I had a, another question about Mikel Arteta, which kind of continues our discussion from the end of part one. Right. And it comes from... AB underscore Gooner on the Discord. He said, have we always misunderstood Mikel Arteta a bit? I think he's always been a defense-minded coach as opposed to Klopp, who's offense first. It was the first thing he implemented and continued to work on. And now with his players, we are saying elite defense. We still need to improve offensively. But I wonder if Mikel will use his pretense and strength, i.e. defense, to win the title. That's a really good question. That is a really good question because, you know, there was a time uh, not too long ago when people had serious reservations about Arteta's attacking coaching and whether we'd ever mm. see, you know, a free-flowing uh, goal-scoring team under his management. I think, honestly, uh, it will get boring the amount of times I'll say it this season, but if I had to use a single word to characterise Arteta's uh, the style he's trying to implement with this team, I would say control um, rather than defensive. I think it's more about control. And as I said in part one, the sort of elimination of jeopardy. Uh, I think he is a perfectionist. And I think that he 
for him, a perfect game is one where the opposition don't have a shot. Mm. And he's getting pretty close to it, to be honest. His suppressive style for this team is really quite effective. I mean, was it Sevilla yeah. in the week who didn't have a shot until the 96th minute, something like that? Um, didn't test the goalkeeper at any rate. And uh, I also think that where a manager spends his money is instructive. And obviously the question alluded to the amount of money that's been spent in defence in the past. But look at where the money was spent this summer principally. Who was the big marquee signing that told us where this team were going to improve, what they were going to do? He spent £100-plus million pounds on a player who's very, very able in possession. I don't want to take that away from him, but he's maybe the best out-of-possession player in the Premier League. You know what occurred um, to me this weekend? I was just sitting there thinking, it. imagine if Manchester City had signed Declan Rice. Well, we could all go home. Yeah, well, exactly. They would be essentially unbeatable. I remember we had this conversation, remember where it was a bit like up in the air and we were sort of worried, like, well, why wouldn't he go to Man City? Because, you know, it's the best team in the world, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but, but people who were saying... Well, you know, there's no way Man City need him. They don't need him. Where would he fit in at Manchester City? And then you just see him play and he would be he would be sensational for them. He just would be unbelievable for them. So, I'm, um, you know, we can thank our lucky stars that the uh, Mikel Arteta powers of persuasion were as good as they were. Absolutely. But I think, you know, spending what they did on him tells you where Arteta's priorities were in the summer. I do sometimes have this slight sense with this team that maybe, like, I think not winning the league last season will have hurt Arteta really deeply, really deeply. And I think a lot of what he did in the summer was about correcting what he saw as the flaws or the undoing of us in that running. What would you, if you had to say that was one thing, what would it be? Um, I mean, to me, it's it was lack of defensive depth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a big thing, right? And obviously in a signing like Timber, ostensibly he brought in someone who gave you cover in all three defensive positions. So that was clearly in his thoughts. I think that he, I think that he felt, I think he just wanted to introduce sort of greater composure to the team. And I think that he did that partly with Rice and his ability to, you know, regain and retain partly with Raya, who he saw as someone who could help us control possession uh, rather than, you know, to, to just snuff out the chance of giving anything back to the opposition. Mm. Um, Timber, obviously, we've spoken about. I, but where I was saying is that I, I do feel like his um, his decisions in the summer were quite led by the trauma of not winning the league. Mm. And I think that there are things that we were doing last season, maybe more on the attacking front, that we we should be looking at as well you know i think it's it, i feel like he this is guesswork for me but you know it's all pie in the sky stuff but who knows but my guess is that he he felt he needed to fix what went wrong and i think that maybe we've sort of slightly overcorrected a little bit in that respect and i think there's a lot last season that went right and we haven't necessarily retained all of that. Mm. But it's hard to know that for sure because we haven't had the players on the pitch. That's true. That is true. And you keep we, we have to keep coming back to that point. I mean, I would 
I would disagree slightly with the question in that I don't think he's necessarily a defensive-minded coach, but I think he is absolutely wedded to the idea that you cannot be a good team without a good defense. Yeah. And if you have the platform at the back, you can then build on top of that and you can become um, you know, a good attacking team. He talks all the time about wanting to score goals, 90, 100 goals, 300,000 passes, all of those things which tell you he, he doesn't just want to defend. He wants to dominate games, control mm-hmm. games, like you said. But I think, you know, the the ability to do that is also tied in with you know, the attacking talent that you have at your disposal. And quite a lot of the time this season, we've been playing with second choice players mm-hmm. in attacking positions. And, you know, there's a very important position in the team that worked extremely well last season. And we haven't really found a replacement for that, you know, for Granite Xhaka. Um, that's still sort of a work in progress, if you like. Although Declan Rice can obviously do it very well, has scored some goals and, and everything else, but I'm not sure that's the main reason we bought Declan Rice, you know? No, so and, and, but I think it is a testament to what we're doing that we have sort of survived that. You know, we, we're still mm. winning a lot of football matches, even though that very important cog uh, has not been there yeah. in Granite Xhaka. Um But yeah, I think it's a really interesting discussion I think, uh, but you can equally dig up, as you say, a load of Arteta quotes about how many goals he wants to score, when he wants to score them, how he wants to kill off matches, um, getting a third or fourth goal. I, I just think he, I just think he's across mm. everything. You know, I think he's just very sort of ravenous for improvement. Um, but it's, it's, yeah, I'm curious to see what we look like if we can get those players back on the pitch. In that vein, actually, mm-hmm. I thought this was an interesting question from Literature Supporter on Twitter. And they said, trying to remember how injury-prone the great Burkamp Henri years were. Is it that every injury is scrutinised today? It seems like the tackling was more bone-crunching back then, but we know more about the body and rehab today, so we know better than to risk further damage. Um, I don't know. I mean, we we had a lot of injuries back in those times too. I think we just forget. Yeah, I'm trying to remember if it was quite as much of a conversation or if it was as much of a worry as it is these days. I think player welfare was not really a discussion at that in the 90s and, and early noughties to the same extent as it is now. Like, I don't think there were so many concerns about how much are we asking of these players? I think that's sort of a later hmm. phenomenon. I mean, I saw this stat, which I thought was really fascinating. So if I asked you who, what was the Invincibles team, you'd all <laughs> reel it off, right? Lehman, yeah. Lauren, Campbell, Torre, Cole, Jumberg, Vieira, Gilberto, Pires, Burkamp, Omri. That team only played two league games together. Ever. <laughs> that's mad, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, but, I they mean- played... And I think in the Invincibles season, they played in one, two games. So they played on the on the final day at home to Leicester, I believe. Right. And they played the 4-2 win over Liverpool with the Omri hat-trick. Um, but, you know, Ray Parler started 16 league games. Edu uh, started 13. 
Pascal Sigan must have started quite a few as well. He started a few. Will Tour started a few. Reyes. Um, Ali Adier. That, there were a lot of people contributing to that. I mean, that is mad, isn't it? Twice uh, in that season, they that 11 played. So injuries are nothing new. I think we can ascertain. I'd have to go back and look at it to be like who was missing when. I mean, we had a few suspensions that season as well, don't forget. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Keown was there, obviously. Um, yeah. Lauren was out for a while, wasn't he? He got a big ban at the start of the season. Um, who played? Was it... Um... I think Torre maybe Torre. played right back. Uh, Kian played some games at centre-back. Seagull played some games at left-back, I seem to believe. I seem to remember cool. Mm. Um, but, you know, speaking about sort of the depth of the well, uh, people like Edu and Ray Parler and Jose Reyes and Kanu and others, it's not... You know, there was we were able to bring in some very high quality players mm. who were theoretically reserves with f- only five subs as well. Uh, it's yeah. worth remembering. So, um, yeah, I just wonder now if the you know if the way the game has developed in the last twenty years is a factor as well, though. You know, um, yeah, we were watching we were watching match of the day at home. Uh, on Sunday morning, and my wife was going, "Jesus, you know that guy's so fast." Can't remember who. Maybe it was Martinelli, and I was going, "You know what? Everyone is fast in yeah. the Premier League. It's just levels. It's just levels of quickness." You know, I know that. You know, for example, Jorginho's not winning any races, but you know, for the most part, these guys are just incredible athletes, sprinters. You know who who can do it for ninety minutes, and I think that probably plays a part in in how bodies react to the strain that's been put on them. I mean, speaking of injuries, here's a question from Critical T on the Discord. He said, "What did you make of Arteta's comments about Ben White hiding his injuries so he can play as often as he can? Is it possible he likes football more than he lets on?" <laughs> <laughs> I think he maybe does. <laughs> I think we can say that. Um, I also just think he's a top pro, basically. I mean, what, I suppose that's an interesting question. Is that professional? You know, is it right to withhold information if you're carrying a problem because you want to play? Do you want players to be more honest and open? Does I mean, do, does he hide information? That There was that uh, Rob Holding interview um, yeah. that I've referenced a couple of times, and he talked about Ben White playing that game against Newcastle at the end of the, the previous season with a grade two or three hamstring strain, is that something he hid or was that something he was just prepared to do for the team because we didn't have anybody else to play? I think in that instance, yeah. it was more the latter. You know, Much I think more. It was, it was more kind of the emergency situation. Mm. Um, but he did say, he did say, um, sorry about Ben White, the, the actual comments were, he always wants to be on the pitch and he wants to hide anything that is in there. But we highlighted something happening that we noticed in the last two weeks as well. We wanted to protect him today. It was the right call from the physios and the medical department. And tomorrow we'll assess him and understand what's happening. So, you know, where's the line between toughness and actually going, hey, uh, this is not right. I need to get something fixed here. You know, I, I, I sort of, I understand it from both sides, you know. He wants to yeah. play 
um, and he's a very committed guy and you've got to admire that kind of um, attitude because there are players who are quite the opposite, you know, who will like shirk off when they feel the slightest thing or nothing at all. Um, and I know which I'd rather have in my squad, but of course you do have to manage that. And I think this sort of suggests that they're aware of, of you know, Ben White's character in that regard. Exactly. I think you nailed it there. As a manager, you'd rather have 18 guys like Ben White than the opposite, you know, um, guys who will put themselves out there when they're not feeling 100% are prepared to take that risk, prepared to play through pain, basically. And I think it's interesting. We've had questions over the last couple of weeks. I can't remember if we did them on the show or not, but we have had questions about what's going on with Ben White. He looks a bit fatigued. He's been subbed off during games. Mm. Well, I think we just got our answer. You know, he's obviously been carrying something and playing through it. Um, and given that there's a break coming up, it was probably an opportune moment to take him out the firing line, say, have a bit of rest, have a bit of time off, allow your body to actually recuperate. And then hopefully he'll be raring to go by the time we come back. Mm. Um, I'm sure that's what he'll say anyway. He'll tell Arteta he's raring to go, whether he is or not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and not a bad you know, sub against uh, Burnley to be able to bring Zinchenko in and switch Tomiyasu over to right back. You know, well, that that there again, that that sort of goes to the to the depths uh, that we were talking about, or the depth within the squad that we were talking about in the first half. You know, yep. Um, I did enjoy this from Twitter, Emmanuel Ob, who said, "Good morning, gents. Were Spurs the real winners at Wolverhampton Wanderers?" <laughs> Um, no, they were not, thankfully. That were was, you watching that? Yeah. Yeah, I turned on, like, turned on about the last 15 minutes. Uh, I was out and about doing some things on Saturday, and I was like, oh. And I just sort of had it there. I was doing a bit of prep for the game on, on Arsblog News, and I had it on, and it was like, ooh, what a goal from Sarabia. What a goal that was to equalize. And, yeah, incredible. Um, fucking hell, brilliant. And then, of course, for them to concede the uh, the winner in the 97th minute, whatever it was. I mean, if I was the other emoji in the first half, I was the crying laughing emoji for this one, for sure. <laughs> uh, a similar uh, fun question about Spurs, actually, from Duran on Discord. He said, morning, gents. How much funnier is it now that in the summer of 2019, Spurs tried to come in and hijack our deal for William Saliba? I'd actually forgotten that. Yeah, I did wonder whether that, you know, how much truth there was in that. Was that a way of getting more money, you know? But maybe they were. What a I, think they, I think they did. Act, well, from what I've heard, mm. they did come in quite late and try and do the deal. Um, but it was just sort of way, way too late in mm. the process. Um, but still, it's just a nice thing to sort of lord over them, isn't it? Now they've got Romero and Eric Dyer. What a, what a, <laughs> what a life. That is funny, Noah, I have to say. Um, it was very, very amusing. Uh, Jedders 90, this goes to set pieces um, that we were talking about. He said, goodly yeah. interlol day one. Oh, God, interlol. Anyway, I've noticed how many goals are scoring from corners, direct or from rebounds, including the two from Saturday's game, and looked at our record for the last two seasons. We have scored 20 goals since the start of last season from corners. This is from 329 corners in total, 
And we're way in front for corners taken this season at 106 already in 12 games. Last season, we had 223 in total. This means we score from 6% of our corners. The league average appears to be about 3.5% for the 10 seasons from 2011 to 2021. Is Nicholas Yeover working his magic or are we just on a purple patch? Wow. Well done for doing all the homework. Yeah. Um, I'd say doing sort of double the average... It's pretty decent return. 6%, that's about, what, 1 in 20 we're scoring from. Um, yeah, I, I mean, he certainly, it seems, you know, when he was hired, it was quite a novel idea, or, or when Andres Jorgsen was hired before him, that Arsenal would have a set-pieces coach. It now feels crazy that you didn't have one before. Mm. I mean, it is such an important part of the game and such a specialism. And, uh, you know, he's there on the touchline, every set piece, uh, watching his, his work play out. Um, I think it must be something that Arteta and his staff are talking about. They've probably looked at those numbers as well and said, we're winning a lot of these corners. We're doing that because of the types of defences we're facing. We have to capitalise. And I thought it was interesting what he said about William Saliba after the game, where, you know, he said he... He could have sort of suggested he could do more of this. You know, he has the physique, he has mm. the presence to be more of a threat in the penalty box. I think Gabriel absolutely is one. Um, you know, if we line up as we have done recently with four potential centre backs in the team, Ben White on one side, Tommy Asu on the other, you take those four, you add Declan Rice, you've got a Pretty decent threat, I think, on attacking set. Hey, even, you know, six foot four Kai Havertz should be doing a bit more yeah. in there as well, you know. Yeah. So we're a big team, and I think that, that plays into it. Quality of delivery and quality of, of what you do, but variation as well, I think. And there have been examples, you know, this season of how we have varied our approach depending on the opposition. Was it, I can't remember the game where we went, basic, was it Manchester United? Every corner went to the back post. Uh, there was another game where we played basically all short corners because we were trying to tempt the other team out. Um, Declan Rice was doing the Ben White thing on Saturday, wasn't he? Um, you know, we yeah. have somebody to occupy the goalkeeper. That's normally um, Ben White's job, uh, but he wasn't there. So Declan Rice was doing that. And we're just a big team. Um, it, it's an important part of the game. I I wonder, I'd love to know like how much they practice these because you know i don't think you can get as good as we have got by just it being a purple patch you know no i think a lot of work goes into this on the training ground and the thing about that is like set piece trainings are paying the hole like it's not much fun really um you know you want to be doing different things in training so it's about trying to find that balance between keeping players engaged in the training and then implementing those ideas on the pitch on Saturday or Sunday or whenever you play but it has been very effective there's no no question about that and um you know like you say when we are facing teams who are sitting deep you know if you force corners which is you know kind of what you have to do a lot of the time when you're um trying to get the ball into a packed defense or a packed penalty box you have to make the most of your corners so we're doing that. It's good. Yeah, I, I remember speaking to uh, Yeovil's predecessor, Andres Jorgensen, about it. And he he spoke about that thing of needing to keep players engaged. He also said one of the big challenges is you just don't get much time, really. Like, even if it's something that Arteta thinks is important or places emphasis on, you're talking like 10 to 15 minutes in a session, you mm. know. And 
what you have to work on is you have to hope basically that over time, all those short little periods kind of build up this bank that you're able to call upon within a game. Mm. And it's a fascinating role because it's it has sort of an outsized uh, impact on games. You know, I mean, this match we won because of two set pieces. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's it's great that we've got someone who seemingly knows what they're doing uh, in charge of it and. I think it's probably going to be a theme all through the season. Yeah, I agree. Um, let's have another question. That's the jingle okay. that I've designed. Do you like it? <laughs> I love it. Um, Ollie Tucker, who's at Ollie Tucker 93, said, Goodly morning, gents. One of the commentators on the international coverage called Trossard the best finisher in the Arsenal squad. Would you agree with that assessment? And if not, who would you say has better goal-scoring technique? Well, that's a good question. Mm. Like, I think he's very, very technically secure. Mm. Like, he's able to get his shots off from all kinds of angles and from, you know, from each foot. You know, the one that he, he forced the save with from the keeper was a left-footed shot. I think it was a, a move we probably should have done more with when Declan Rice won the ball. He played it to Havertz and yeah. it sort of broke down. Not broke down a bit, but... Um, we didn't have the momentum, but he still was able to get a shot away. Is he the best finisher? Hmm. I, th I mean, maybe it's recency bias, but he'd be up there for me. Um, like, I'm confident when he has a, sh a sight of goal, I'm certainly confident that he can put the ball away. Uh, I mean, you know, Martinelli and Saka are good as well, yeah. I think. I think Saka is, is getting better and better, especially. Uh, from all sorts of angles, all mm -hmm. sorts of shots. Gabriel Jesus... Has know, his moments. <laughs> he has his moments. I mean, look at that finish he produced in Seville, but does he do it consistently enough? Um, Eddie, I think, has, again, can finish really well in certain situations where he shows great sort of adaptability or uh, ingenuity to find a finish. Um but, you know, he's missed some pretty presentable chances as well over the past 18 months. Mm. I think Trossard, in terms of like, if you, a ball's going to break to somebody in the box in a pressurised moment yeah, and you want someone to really execute effectively, I think technically he's he's got to be right up there. Definitely. I think so. I think so, yeah, for sure. He's like, he's just got a very clean way of striking the ball and um yeah like as i said in part one there have been some real near misses for him like i don't have memories of him sort of slicing many 30 yards over the bar i think his technique is really sound and actually something he's very good at is sort of creating the space to get his shots off yeah. arsene wenger would talk about his backlift a lot about him not having the big backlift his backlift and his small feet probably yeah you know? that would, wenger would have loved that <laughs> uh Back sack and crack says, "Goodly morning, chaps. What is the probability of Andrew not being able to find a question he has and then mutters bum 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 while looking? <laughs> very, very, very slim. I would have to say the XB, the expected bum bum bum. <laughs> You're overperforming your XB, I'd say for this season so for, far. For sure, for sure. What about this from Matt Taylor? Um, Goodly morning. Suggestions the Brazilian national team." 
don't trust the club due to Martinelli's injury in the last interlull have surfaced with Jesus likely to fly out with the other two Gabbies. Why can't national sides trust the club's medical team to make the correct decision for the players? If people haven't seen the story, um, it was reported after the game on, on Saturday that Brazil want Gabriel Jesus to fly to Brazil. They've got games against, I think, Colombia and Argentina. Uh, important games as well. So you can understand them wanting the player, but Mikel Arteta says he hasn't even trained with us yet. So it's a bit of um, it's a bit of an awkward one. Yes. I mean, Abue for Sam on, on Twitter said, ever since James said he doesn't trust Arteta's injury updates, England wants to test Saka themselves and now Brazil <laughs> wants to test Jesus themselves. This is all your fault. No question, just food for thought. Um, <laughs> they're listeners. They're mm. listeners, all these national associations. Well, here's the thing. I don't trust what Arteta says publicly about injuries, but presumably Brazil, the Brazilian National Federation, aren't getting their injury news from Arteta's press conference. <laughs> They're not go- logging on to Ask Blog News and saying, what's he said about, you know, is Jesus a doubt? Like, there, there's dialogue behind the scenes, right? Mm. Um, who knows? Maybe this is partly a function of the fact that Arsenal have had a lot of change in their medical department of late. So those relationships uh, that exist between the club and the national associations are all probably quite new, quite novel. You know, um, Gary Driscoll, has left the club this mm-hmm. season. Perhaps it was the case, you know, if you think of Saka being made to report for England in the last international break, maybe if Gary O'Driscoll rang England and said, guys, Saka's not going to make it, maybe they've got that relationship mm. where they trust that. But, you know, maybe there's a new man in at Arsenal and he doesn't have those sorts of connections yet and they want to see for themselves. It's a new woman, I mean, isn't it? It's um, Flo Newton is her name. Forgive me, that's... Yeah. Uh, that's every hashtag everyday sexism for me there. But um, flying Jesus to Brazil does feel a bit extreme, I would say. It does rather, you know, if he, if he was on the bench at the weekend, you could, you could understand it. The fact that he hasn't played since the end of October, hasn't even trained with the team. I think, I think um, national sides, look, clubs are always going to look after their own interests as much as possible. But I think, over the last couple of years, and certainly under Arteta's tenure, I don't remember there ever being attempts to pull players out of international duty when maybe, you know, we would have been within our rights or sensible or, or you know, even devious to do it. You know, there have been players who played a lot and you could say, mm, you know, he's got a little tweak of the hamstring the same way that Alex Ferguson used to do it every time Ryan Giggs was called up for Wales for a friendly, just wouldn't let him go. Mm. Um, maybe times have changed. Maybe you just can't do that anymore. But it does seem a bit pointless flying him all the way to Brazil if he's just absolutely not going to be able to play. How much of that do you think is down to the player to then say to his national side look, I'm injured. I, I really can't play. I'm not ready for this. Or is that asking too much of a, a player, particularly, you know, when international football is so important in Brazil? Yeah. And when, it, you know, players saying to their international manager, to be honest, guys, I'm not going to report, that doesn't tend to end too well. For yeah. Them. 
Um, I think it is probably too much to ask of the player. You'd like to think national associations could be sensible enough in themselves. I mean, look, in reality, if he goes, he'll probably be fine. He'll probably get flown on a nice jet or flying, you know, first class. He'll have plenty of uh, room to relax and, you know, get there, Mm. do his assessment, come back. Uh, You might even think, I'll get to see some family or something. You never know, right? Mm. But... Yeah, from our perspective, it is annoying as hell. And it, I think it speaks to sort of a bigger issue, which is probably a growing um, lack of trust between international federations and clubs because they are sort of at odds with each other over these players. Um, yeah. And I think it's probably something that's happening. You know, obviously we look at Arsenal, we talk about Arsenal, but I wouldn't be surprised if this is happening more broadly. Um so yeah, I, I I really hope he doesn't have to go, but it, you know, it looks like he may have to. He may have to, yeah. Um, here is a question that made me a bit sad. <laughs> Ashley Moss, another. Sorry, that was my other jingle. That right. I, uh, I just thought all the boom, boom, boom. Like, why not have some yeah. jingles? Um, you should good, think up a catchphrase as well while you're at it. Just you know, sure, sure. Somebody get the lawyers. At the ready. Uh, Goodly morning, gents. Are you worried mm. about Declan Rice at all? Oh. He seems to be playing a lot of minutes for club and country. 90 minutes pretty much every game. With Partey out till the new year, the drop-off is massive. Should Arteta be resting him or taking him off in games that are already won? Hmm. When you said, are you worried about it, I was not expecting that question to be about Declan Rice. Well, I know. And that's why the question made me feel a bit sad because I was like, well, I wasn't worried about it, but now you've asked. I mean... This is sort of what he does, though, isn't it? He does play a lot of minutes. Yeah. Touch wood, touch wood. Touch wood, touch all the wood, all the wood. Um, Am I worried? I'm sort of more worried about the lack of depth in midfield, you know, the, the injury and the, the procedure that Thomas Partey has had, which r- reportedly is going to keep him out until uh, the new year. The next injury. <laughs> that too. You know, that that's more of a worry for me because it increases the burden on someone like Declan Rice where, you know, there might be a game or two where you can sit him down, but I just don't see how that's possible. I don't see how it's possible. But then, you know... Maybe these aren't the best examples. Well, Gabriel's a good example of a guy who played a lot and plays a lot all the time. I know he hasn't had to deal with international football um, until recently, but William Saliba just played a lot. And look, the back injury he got last season, I think, was just a bit of a freak rather than it being a consequence of him being overplayed or anything like that. It was a bad landing and then he aggravated his back and, you know, that can happen. So I, I don't worry about Declan Rice or his ability to perform at a high level week in, week out, because hasn't he just been doing that time and time again for West Ham and for England and, you know, now for us? So I, I don't see yeah. I don't see that he's doing anything particularly different. My worry, of course, is like if we, if, you know, if, if something does happen to him, then what sort of a state our midfield is going to be in because that that could be a big big bump in the road yeah i, I hope you're i hope you're looking forward to when in like four years time declan rice uh pulls a hamstring 
people digging out this podcast to say that we jinxed him. Uh, <laughs> I haven't asked you, actually, you may have spoken about it on the Askcast, but like any thoughts about the Partey injury? It is kind of exasperating, isn't it? I mm. mean, his time at Arsenal has been so plagued with injury problems. I sense that patience with him among the fans is kind of thinner than ever. At this point. I think that's, I think that's, fair based on what I've seen anyway and comments that we've had on the site and everything else. I mean, I think the the reality of his situation is he's going to be 31 in June. He'll have 12 months left on his contract. His time at Arsenal, you know, last season aside where I think he was available, you know, for most of the season with only a little break here and there, but there have been periods where we've missed him for like the entire run in or at crunch points in the season. And, to be fair, I think, you know, some of that is well, not down to the player, but some of that is just not having sufficient cover or sufficient depth in your squad, right? So that's that. But I do think if Arsenal are not thinking very, very carefully about where to go next in terms of midfield recruitment, you know, Partey, Jorginho, who I think has done pretty well in the last couple of weeks, um, but, you know, in terms of age, same as Elneny, in terms of age, you know, there's room for a refresh in that midfield area. And I think Partey will be a, a casualty in that sense because you can no longer make any plans and assume that he's going to be part of them. No, and, you know, contract situations alone... Elneny, Jorginho and Partey uh, will all be out of contract within the next 18 months. So whatever happens, even if they extend yeah. uh, Jorginho. So that is obviously going to be a focus. And by the way, on the subject of Partey, I spoke about the growing uh, mistrust that exists between clubs and national associations. Uh, he is a perfect case in point with Arsenal sending a member of staff actually with him to his Ghana. But, but would that not have to be at the... Um the express with, with permission. permission of, of Ghana. Of right? course. But personally, I also think it shows that Arsenal had their concerns oh, about yeah, yeah, Ghana's yeah, yeah. management. For sure. Management For sure. Well, I, I think maybe it shows more about, or it says more about what Arsenal know about Thomas Partey's fitness than Ghana's ability to manage his minutes. Yeah, possibly. You know? Well, they, what they also know is his importance to Ghana. You know, so... Yeah, you know they'll take a chance on him, and it, you know it's a situation. Of course, it's complicated by Afcon in January. So if he gets better by the end of December, he's going to get called up for. Yeah, you know, I mean, we've talked about a winger, um, and there's been talk about a striker in January, and you know we don't quite know yet what Arsenal are capable of doing in the transfer market in January. As as you've said a couple of times, the way that the David Raya deal was structured suggests that you know the 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 money we spent during the summer was kind of all of the money until next summer if you know what i mean but and this kind of an iou to brentford for yeah. 27 million that they've got to deal with it but i mean is, is there is there a need to address this situation in january beyond hoping that Partey gets fit and stays fit for the rest of the season um you know bearing in mind that you know he he may be missing until how long does AFCON go on for? Like till mid February? Let's have a look. AFCON final 
2024, uh, February 11th. Right. So quite, you know, if they go that far and he's involved, then he could be out until mid-February, you know? So we're talking about, I don't know how many games of football we, we're, we're talking about him missing between now and then, like 20, 25 20 games? I don't know. You know, between cup games, it's a lot of football. So, you know, is there a need for Arsenal to sort of say this particular set of circumstances makes it important for us to do something in January or to put something in place for January? Because, you know, it's not like you can't say you weren't warned. You know, it's 13th of November now. You can do plenty of groundwork between now and January 1st. Yeah, I mean, uh, we shall see. I, 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 my personal opinion is that I think, I think if Arsenal could solve this left eight conundrum in a funny way, that might be the most helpful thing for the number six position. Because the problem you've got now is, you know, what are your options at the base of that midfield? You've got Declan Rice, you've got Jorginho, you've got Mohamed El Nenny, right? Mm. But at the moment, you're having to play two of those because you're starting Rice further ahead. If we could construct a midfield that meant, you know, Rice was playing at the base and, you know, either Havertz finds some form on the left or Fabio Vieira or Zinchenko or somebody, somebody mm. plays in that left side midfield role and Odegaard on the right, then I'd feel a little bit more comfortable thinking that, you know, well, we've got Jorginho in reserve as a rotation option. We're just spread a bit thin there right now because both Jorginho and Rice seem to be playing every game. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we are, uh, you know, a Declan Rice injury or suspension away from a Jorginho, what, who, midfield? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? That, that midfield I doesn't particularly bear <laughs> no, thinking about. No, no we don't uh, want to see that one. Well, I think I saw it actually in the Carabao Cup game at, uh, up to Park. Uh, <laughs> And I didn't love it. All so. right. Uh, let me ask you this one, Van Pike on the Discord. Any concerns with Gabriel Martinelli's lack of output in terms of goal assist contributions through the first part of the season? Hit me with the numbers. What are the numbers? The um, numbers are, I had them here. Oh, here we go. Boom, boom, boom. I oh, fucking, there we go. Expected B. TM. Yeah. Uh, so. He's got a Champions League goal, a Premier League goal, and three assists between the two competitions. Mm, so 14 appearances in all competitions, two goals and three assists. Are you, but do you have concerns? No, not really. Mm. I think he's been really good the last couple of games, actually. Yeah, I agree. I, I, obviously, he absolutely destroyed Sevilla in the Champions League and that fullback will still be having nightmares about Gabriel Martinelli right now. I thought he was very good in this game. We spoke about the emphasis on the left-hand side. I think he does a really... For a player who absolutely loves scoring goals, I think we need to give him credit for what a disciplined, selfless role he does at times by bringing the width, sticking to that touchline, following his manager's instruction... Um, and sort of going on the outside time after time after time. Mm. I think that's quite mature. And, you know, I sometimes catch myself thinking, well, I'd like to see him pop up a bit more centrally. I'd like to see him in the box. I'd like to see him scoring more goals. But he's so important to giving width and stretching the opposition. And I think he does. he's doing that really well. Mm. 
Um, I think he's got it within him to score more goals. And I think it's interesting when you look at the goals he has scored. I mean, take, for example, the one in Seville. That comes from a, a counter-attack right, where there's a bit more freedom in his movement and he's not having to mm. hold the width, stand out by the touchline. Um, I also think that, you know, he's a player who benefits when Gabriel Jesus is in the team, as we've discussed, and there'll be times where those two can combine, hopefully a little bit more, as they did in Seville. But I'm not worried about his level of performance. Mm. I think he's doing a good job. Yeah, I think the numbers are a bit below where you would expect and, and yeah. what he's capable of, but I'm not worried or I don't have concerns per se because I think I think it'll come for him. I think he'll start to um to improve those numbers. Um, you know, the overall level of his play is very good, so uh, I'm not worried. I'm not he's worried. also scored the biggest goal of our season. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Albeit via uh Nathan Ake's face. That was the biggest goal of mm-hmm. our season so far. So yeah. he's had a big moment already. Speaking of deflected goals and things like that, let's finish off with this one from Schnurl. Schnurl. Schnurl on the Discord. He said, how can I ever feel clean again after cheering on Chelsea two weeks in a row? <laughs> Horrible feeling, I'm sure, yeah. Do you know what's interesting about that game? Uh, I, we won't go too far into it because I'm sure you'll, you'll be doing it on the 30. But I missed the first half of right. Chelsea Man City and I got in at half time and it had been it was two all and it had been a, like a crazy first half. And I literally texted my brother saying, who was there, uh, obviously as a Chelsea fan, and I was like, um, oh, Shit, I really missed the wrong. I picked the wrong half to miss in this game, <laughs> and then the second half delivered just as much chaos. Yeah. Did you watch it? I did. Yeah, yeah, I was watching it. Um, I mean, there's something quite mad about Chelsea this season. Uh, yeah, like I said, I don't want to go too far into the weeds of it because we will talk about this uh, a bit later on on Patreon in in the thirty. But you know, it was um, it was kind of mad and extraordinary what was going on and you know you have to sort of compromise your own principles don't you because as realistic as we all are about our chances of winning the title whenever there's a chance for Manchester City to drop points you want them to drop points yeah um and thankfully they did that yesterday you know four goals conceded which is that's also mad that doesn't happen to Man City very often no, and there's a very big game when we come back from the international break. We come back with a bang. I think it's the Saturday lunchtime, much to uh, Jürgen Klopp's oh, yes. irritation. Liverpool, Man City, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, those are the teams that look like the real threats to us in, mm. in the title race, for sure. Uh, no surprises there, I guess. But uh, somebody's going to drop points next week. We didn't mention the bit right at the end of the game that many people have asked. Uh, Jmart91 says, which was funnier, Michael Oliver getting hit on the head with the ball at full time or Arteta joking with the media and bringing VAR up again? Clearly, it's Michael Oliver getting hit on the head. Um, One of the best things that can happen in any football match, really, a referee being hit by the ball. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Who was actually responsible for it? I think it was a Burnley player because David Raya pumped it long and a Burnley player just headed it back and the ref blew the final whistle. He's standing there sort of erect with the whistle in his mouth and the ball just goes doing straight off the top of his head. They immediately cut to Mikel Arteta hugging uh, his staff on the sidelines. So he didn't get to, like, was he standing there going, ow, fuck, just sort of rubbing the top of his uh, head. But anyway, nice to see it happen to referees. Um, yes. Yeah. All right. Uh, I think, yeah, lovely, lovely. That's the sort of stuff we really want to see in football. Exactly. All right, we had better leave it there. Like I said, join us later this afternoon for a full recap of the weekend's Premier League action over on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash arsblog. You can join myself and Phil Costa for that. Uh, for now, thank you very much indeed, as always, for being with us. Hope you enjoyed the show, and we will catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.